podcast, cutting edge conversations with the quant community. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Quantcast, Risto.net's podcast on quantitative finance. As usual, Mauro Cesar, Quant Finance Editor Risto.net here speaking, and as always, a special guest sharing experience and opinions with us. Today's guest is Dario Villani, the CEO and co-founder of Duality Group, a hedge fund founded in 2017 with headquarters in New York City. Hi, Dario, and welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. Our pleasure. Let's start by introducing Duality Group. Can you give us a a quick sketch and uh, tell us how the business has evolved since its launch? So we started Duality Group with four partners in the summer of 2017 with an investment of Jim Pallotta, And uh, we then proceeded to work here very hard. We were able to launch in July of 2018, exactly one year after we got together to fund the company. And since then, we have been trading live now for exactly two years. Jim was instrumental. People know him for being the president and co-owner of S Roma. But, you know, he has a long path of trading, a successful trading, was vice chairman at Tudor Investment Corporation and uh, ran a big equity fund. It was the Raptor Group. And he has been very instrumental and a great guide for all of us in being able to be successful. I see. I guess, Roma, let's remind uh, those uh, who are not following football or soccer, as you call in the US, is a football team from Rome. Um, let's talk about duality strategy. What is the investment strategy that you follow? What markets are you trading in? And what are the core phenomena you look at exploit? I mean, investment strategy, we are classified, we are put in a bucket, and that's the one of machine learning funds. Uh, we trade U.S. stocks, ETFs, and global futures. The time scale of our alpha is roughly a few days. It's not really a slow process. It's not a high frequency. It just lives in the middle in the few days time scale. And uh, as far as core phenomena, we don't really go after core phenomena. That's one of the reasons why we think machine learning is key for the investment process. The reality is that core phenomena, underlying the concept of a core phenomena, there is a belief there is some immutable law of nature. And while at any point in time, relationship live in a much smaller subspace of what is possible in the modeling, you know, the subspace evolves over time and markets are very much a living organism, like meant almost to confound late adopters or late comers. So it's constantly evolving, constantly changing. While at any point in time, you can really have relationships that you can think are phenomena or like parsimonious relationship among assets, those tend to change. And that's why we don't really go after a core phenomenon, but we go after a paradigm that can describe how things evolve over time, how you can transition across qualitatively different laws. And uh, so there you have it. And so you trade very liquid products using and modeling them and they market using ML machine learning. So what was the advantage of using ML compared to sticking to standard systematic methods? As I was saying, machine learning in general, right, doesn't have, it's like a universal proximator. You have a structure that is rich enough that can mimic any sort of relationship, linear, non-linear, whatever you wish, and because it's a universal approximator, you have a chance over time to transition across qualitatively different models. Whenever you do systematic, standard systematic trading, you, at the very onset, 
you have to write down what is the model governing the phenomena. And once you do that, over time you can change the parameters of the model, but you are trapped in that manifold that describes those relationships, and the only thing you can do is really updating the parameters, but you're never going to get out of the subspace described by that law or equation or model. Machine learning is very flexible and really allows you to pass ways completely for, from having to write down a model, and you can transition across many models. At some level, you have access to all the models of the world. Of course, you know, when you solve the models of the world, like you really, the most weight is in a subset of them, but really the, the edge you have is this ability to transition across qualitatively different models and processes and all of that. And machine learning is key for that. And just to give an example, like, you know, at any point in time, you can be like in 2006, the dynamics of the system, of the market, was driven by the investment grade credit index. At some point in time, it was driven by the British pound, and now could be driven by the Chinese yuan. So there is always a parsimonious representation of what drives what, but the, how the processes are driven, how securities are driven, and which security are key in explaining the most variance that changes over time. And unless you have a structure that is rich enough, like ML can really give you, it's going to be very hard to do that. Um, do you think the use of machine learning has been encouraged by the proliferation of new and alternative data sets, uh, of which there's great wealth now? And do you think the success of machine learning is due in part today's data sets? I frankly don't believe so. Like any, any conference I've been to, people tend to put in the same sentence machine learning and large data. And the other expression people have is especially deep learning and big data. Um, yes, definitely the focus on data helps any part of the statistical inference science because it gets to pose new questions. The reality is machine learning has to be able to prove they can, that it can do better than other methods with traditional data and simple data sets. I always give the example of you know, quantum mechanics. Clearly, quantum mechanics is key to explain superconductivity and magnetism and a very complex system. But quantum mechanics really had a breakthrough because it was able to explain the energy spectrum of the hydrogen atom, a very simple atom structure with one electron and one proton. So to me, the value of machine learning should not be you know, associated necessarily with data sets. You can have data sets that people don't know about, that gives you an edge, but has nothing to do with the paradigm you're going to use and what are the specificity of that paradigm. So I would say no, even though clearly the world of data, it's putting at the forefront of everybody's mind what really kind of statistical inference machine you have and you know, pushing people to be able to deal with more and more complex data, but the value of machine learning, it's not tied to the, to the proliferation of data sets. And talking about accessibility to these uh, technologies, to these solutions, there seems to be more and more off-the-shelf software available today. Um, are the barriers to entry starting to erode for new managers looking to harness the potential of machine learning? At some level, yes. Clearly, there are off-the-shelf amazing system and software people have written. The reality is the, the financial time series forecasting, or in general, the problem of how you forecast assets return, it's so specific, it's still like very much not in the engineering phase. It's not like 
we understand how to build an amplifier for a stereo system, and now that the components are available to everybody, a 12-year-old can just assemble it and play guitar. Like, we are very far away from that. You really need to have a series of breakthroughs so that you can adapt the machine learning that has been so successful in other areas to finance. And just to give an example, even firms with gigantic amount of resources are failing at using machine learning paradigm for forecasting asset returns. So we are not at the stage where the problem is so well understood that it's just a matter of engineering and then having a lot of tools available to you can make it lower the barrier of entry. It's very much like a new field where you need to have breakthroughs and having tools available is really not going to cut it. So let's talk about how you use ML at Duality and in particular what types of uh, machine learning do you use there and uh, what phases of the investment process um, do you use them in? Yeah, like first of all let's re remind ourselves what are the I would call them four phases of the investment process. The features engineering. Uh, By which you mean? Then there is, you know, you build, uh, you pre-process data to build a transform of data to feed in your forecasting system. It could be building a moving average. It could be building, um, mm -hmm. you know, an accounting measure that is a ratio to accounting measure. Like, Whatever data you have, you, wanna, you may or may not want to transform it in a certain way. You might want to, you know, put the, uh, like, to do the whitening. Like, so every financial time series, you can say, I want to have mean zero and variance one. I want to detrend it. I want to remove the seasonal components so that I only feed the residuals. I mean, there is some pre-processing phase. Uh, that is important. That's called the feature engineering. Then you feed it into your, then the second phase is forecasting. Given a set of data inputs, you produce asset return forecast. Then there is the third part that is you are armed with a bunch of forecasts and you want to build an optimal portfolio. So it's the portfolio construction or optimization given you know, some utility function, some cost function, and all of that. And then the fourth phase is the, you know, execution. And then, you know, around all of it, there is risk management. Uh, most people who talk about machine learning, they generally use it for data, uh, feature engineering, clustering, understanding the data structure. Some people use it for execution. It's pretty well understood way of doing stuff. There's another class of people that use some form of reinforcement learning for optimization. The one that has been eluding most, it's using machine learning for forecasting. And that's what we do. Like the core of our forecast engine is driven by machine learning. And more specifically, we have a neural net structure that is adapted in a certain way to be able to deal with all the issues related to forecasting financial time series. Interesting. So is this, just to clarify, is this the only phase of the investment process where ML is present at duality, or is one also the other three added? This is the original place. We use some machine learning for feature engineering, as, and it's a similar paradigm. We use some machine learning for, uh, you know, the assessing the quality of execution and how we decide which venues, which broker to give, um, you know, the orders to. We have some natural language processes, um, algos to be able to deal with corporate actions in a very effective way. But I would say that the very original piece is like how we do forecasting armed with the machine learning paradigm. I see. So these are all, let's say, front office function. Is there any ML in the back office? Again, like, you know, natural language processes is very useful.
successful to deal with corporate action. Um, there is a way to assess uh, which venue to visit. And, uh, you know, people talk about multi-arm bandit problems to say who do you give the orders to. And then as it's pretty well understood technique. Uh, but it's not as core as the forecasting part is. Even though the natural language processes for back office is very useful to be able to process corporate action, especially when you deal with thousands of stocks. Let's talk about a big subject, interpretability of ML, that has been covered quite extensively in Risk.net. How do you address it? Well... <sighs> These are the two memes that people always talk about. One is interpretability, the other one is overfitting, and then there is always behind the scene the concept of big data. Um, interpretability, it's, it's philosophical in many ways. Like, a lot of the interpretability of traditional system, it's very tied to having postulated a model of the world. And so everything makes sense, everything has a clear interpretation. And if you have a simple model where if you are generous, you're gonna buy a drink, if you see me buying a drink, it's very obvious that you're gonna come to the conclusion that there is generosity underlying that. Anytime instead you have a mix of model or a structure where you mix different interpretation, different model, and so on, interpretability becomes much more, you know, muted at a certain level. But it's, it's not that you don't have a sense of what makes money, what doesn't make money. Like all the traditional risk management measures, you can do PNL explain, you can do attribution and all of that. But what drives what? It's not as crisp as traditional methods. And I would argue the reason why it's so crisp in traditional methods is because you are assigning probability one that your model is right. So within that model, everything has a clear interpretation. And this is not, people are hanging up on that, but this is not new. Like when you trade an options book and I ask you, how do you interpret the move in the PNL today? You can say, all right, this much came from Gamma, this much came from Delta, this much came from Vega. But that's if you believe in that model. If you were to change the model, the interpretation will change how much comes from Gamma, how much comes from Delta, and so on and so forth. So now imagine you have a probability structure where you have a certain probability, a certain model, a certain probability, another model, you're going to interpret things some weighted average in probability space of what could be the reason for something. And that's the way humans are. Like sometimes you have actions and you can only explain it as a mix of possible interpretation. And this idea that you have a unique way to explain things where things make sense it's just the byproduct of having chosen a model and believing 100% in it. I see the philosophical side of it, but I suppose then on a daily basis, you will have to give a, a, a pragmatic answer to it. So can you always understand or explain the economic rationale in intuition behind the trade that your algo is making? I mean, it depends what explain means. Uh, but yes, you know, doing proper attribution, we can build these saliency maps and we see where which subset of models or which dominant effects is driving what. It's not going to be like 100% because very much it is an, an ensemble approach to things. Attribution is very clear. But you have concurring effects or forecasts or learners that compete with each other and sometimes point in the same direction. So you have a much more articulate, a complex, you know, uh, explanation of what was driving what. And if you really want to dissect it, ultimately, 
you can go to just a few models that most people would recognize. At the end, you know, most of the phenomena are either momentum or there is some reversal. Uh, you can see the interplay between the two. But it's a little bit more complex because there is a probabilistic approach. You don't explain 100% of the variance in that sense. But there is on the margin there are also weak learners with their views, like a polling mechanism that are going to give you a different angle. So let me be more explicit. Like, you know, you can have, by stock, you can have a value investor thinks the stock is cheap. You can have an event trader that thinks, well, there is earnings coming up and there is a very large short basis, so the stock might be prone to a squeeze. And then you have a technical trader that looks at the chart and see there is a double, you know, head and shoulder pattern, so that I think I should, I should go along. So all of these players, all of these learners are mixed up. You have a great trade when kind of they are aligned, they don't cancel each other. So you have the value trader that thinks it's cheap, you have the event trader that thinks there is a catalyst, and then you have the chartist that think that um, the structure is such that there is oversold, overbought, so it's a good idea to buy it. Now, the stock goes up. The value trader is going to think that, you know, it was a good buy because it was cheap. The event trader is going to think it was just a technical situation that was prone to a squeeze. And so they all are going to interpret and they all got into the trade for different reasons. But the great trade is a fundamental trade wrapped into a technical situation. So it's a mix of points of view that you poll of all these learners and that's going to give you a strong signal or not. I see. You mentioned the other risk connected to ML, which is uh, overfitting, uh, which I suppose is uh, quite a problem, especially in situations in which the data set is not as large. How do you address this issue? This is more of an old, uh, it's an old meme, like, you know, machine learning in the last 10 years has made tremendous progress in understanding um, overfitting. All the people involved in machine learning, actually, they knew that as much as the headline number of parameters was gigantic, and so you would feel vulnerable to overfitting, they knew the system would not overfit as much as you would have expected given the headline number of parameters. Now people have gone a step forward. They've theoretically done work of why the system actually doesn't overfit. There is wonderful work done by Tommaso Poggio at MIT. And he actually had a talk, overfitting is good when deep, where he understands, and with, the, I think it's Sasha Racklin, they really understand what is the geometry of the space and why the system doesn't overfit as you would expect and actually things live in a much lower dimensionality. Ourselves too, last year we hired as a special advisor Alessio Figalli, and he won the Fields Medal in 2018. Together with Karen, who is the other managing member of the firm, and Oksana and Raffaele, they wrote a beautiful paper that combines neural net, fractal theory, and information theory, where they compute the effective dimensionality of a neural net. And you see that this order of maximum is smaller than the, what the headline number of parameters will give you. So I really think it's a false problem. It's been very well understood. There is a lot of literature. Maybe 20 years ago, people didn't understand why the system didn't overfit, but it was always obvious they didn't. Opposed to that, I want to tell you, if you think of traditional system, there is, an inf there is an infinite number of models. And you pick one model, let's say Austin Uhlenbeck, in this infinite dimensional space. You pick one point, and you say the system is an Austin Uhlenbeck process. 
and you run a strategy on that, there is nothing that is more overfitting than that. You pick one point in the whole space, you assign probability one, and you run a lot of money on it. That's overfitting. The machine learning system doesn't. I see. I see. Um, let's switch and uh, talk about the learning itself. So to learn based on experience, there needs to be the um, concept of memory and there needs to be a decision on how much history you want to include uh, in the learning. So in quant trading, that is what practitioner referred to as a look back. And um, now you have to decide how much historical data is relevant for your system to, to learn what matters to forecast. How, how do you do it? How far back do you go? Yeah, this is the, the, the biggest challenge when you apply machine learning or in general statistical inference to financial system. The reality is if the markets or the market, like as an entity, was a stationary process or a stationary organism, the more data you have, the better off you are. There are exceptions to that, to this belief. There are situations of stationary processes where actually it's not true that the more data you have, the better off you are. But in general, that's the case. The property markets are non-stationary. So you always have this tension between having a lot of data that are not particularly relevant and not enough data because you want to confine yourself only to the data that is relevant. So the reality is that in financial time series, you never have a lot of data because if you could have, you know, the S&P values going back to the pyramids and the Egyptian and, and Mesopotamia, like, it wouldn't be that relevant anyway. Now, the problem is it's very naive to say, I'm going to use a rolling window, two years. And generally, a lot of the rolling window size is also driven that you want enough data that your covariance estimates or some of the estimates are sensible. The reality is there are times where you need to use only three months. There are times in which you can use five years. And that adds its own dynamics. In our system, in machine learning, you can do work so that you endogenously come up with the time scale at which to retain or let go of information. So how long your memory needs to be to be able to do proper inference. Of course, depending if the time scale is very short or very long, the uncertainty around your estimates are going to be very different, but that's, that's what it is. Like just because you use 10 years of data, you shouldn't be fooled into believing that your estimate is better than somebody uses one year because you're incorporating a lot of irrelevant data. So that's one of the advantages. And having a rolling window is like, why do you believe that two years is always the right look back period? It's like there is a stationarity assumption in that too, where like things change over a two year scale. Instead, in our case, it's very dynamic. It's very much part of the reason why we can be very adaptable because the time scale at which you retain and let go of information is the key for survival, even for a living organism. And uh, in this uh, time series and the fragments and segments of time series that you consider, are all data points worth the same? I mean... You know, like it, you seem to echo the concept of, you know, you know, people could use exponential moving average, you know, mm -hmm. straight averages, and so on. Uh, within the time scale we use, it's pretty much homogeneous. But you could do better than that. But that's the way it is for us. Like you know, it essentially fixes endogenously learns the time scale and within that time scale is pretty much homogeneous. Okay. So another question on machine learning. Uh, so it's been uh, dismissed by some as a buzzword or as a term asset managers use to attract interest, uh, whether or not they are actually using ML in the investment process. Uh, indeed, that is not just a problem for finance. In other fields, 
uh, the even fancier expression uh, artificial intelligence is sometimes used just as a attraction marketing uh, type of wording uh, that doesn't correspond to substance. So what um, what do you think are the key questions that uh, prospective investors can ask in order to understand if one is actually an authentic expert of ML and it's using it uh, versus, let's say, improvised ML asset managers? Um, you know, the, being very much frontier, there are a few very big questions people should be able to answer, like how do you deal with no stationarity? That's one. How do you deal with rare events? That's one of the biggest challenges when you apply machine learning to financial time series. You know, like rare events like a stock dropping 50%. How do you deal with that? Because if you have a learning system, you need a system that is smart enough to realize that bad things can happen, but doesn't succumb to the delusion you can actually forecast those events. It doesn't distort the learning process to accommodate that delusion. So that's the biggest challenge. And how you incorporate also the, the correlation structure in your learning. Because if you learn from 400 stock every day, you're not really learning 400 new things. It's not like 400 pictures of a cat. So that's very much the, the question I would ask an investor. How do you deal with rare events? You know, how do you deal with non-stationarity? Do you use a shallow or a deep network? Why do you use a deep network? And, uh, you know, everybody says there is very low signal to noise. At every layer of a neural net, you're compressing information. If there is low signal to noise, after a couple of layers, a few layers, you're done extracting, you're left with nothing. So why do you even talk about deep learning? And in general, you know, I always say you should look at the background too. You know, I've seen people parading some machine learning expertise, and the reality is it requires very complex math. It, the problems are really hard in terms of, you know, the structure, the ability to do regularization and understand how certain things work. So in some cases, it's even not plausible they could have had the breakthrough to be able to to tackle the issue I just discussed. Right. So and, you know, actually, yeah. So sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Now, you know, like I think most people would agree, the number of people that actually use machine learning forecast is less than ten, and some would argue less than five. And the rest is, of course, you can have a cynical view. And this is one of my favorite jokes on the subject. People say, ah, machine learning is a new name for all the stuff. It's just a regression. And we always have known a regression. But that, you can always be dismissive of breakthroughs having like a one-liner that is dismissive. And my joke is that you could have said when quantum mechanics was invented, ah, we always knew there were particles. Now we don't even know where they are or which one is their speed. So if anything, we are going back in time. At least with classical mechanics, we knew where they were. So like, there is a way to dismiss the field, like ascribing like machine learning name to just being a regression, but the reality is there is a very deep paradigm that is going to change the world and it requires a lot of technical skills. So let's, uh, well, let's put what you just told me into practice. What would you answer to the question, what do you do when uh, um, a negative event, uh, an extreme event, Well, that's part of our secret sauce, but that's like, I can just say something. Like, the the problem is that, let me give, I always give the example of the TEPCO, like was this energy, you know, firm, in, there was the Fukushima disaster, the stock went down 50% in a couple of days. 
So if you run typical software, that's a very strong feature. I would see what happened on the, you know, on the time series leading up to that day. And then would be trained to believe that next time something similar happens, you're going to have a move like that. But that move cannot be explained at all. So again, like you need to be aware that things happen, but you also need a form of intelligence that, you know, doesn't distort the learning process to accommodate the delusion. You can forecast them. And the ensemble here is key. Like if you, there is a model for which that's just an accident. There are models for which is a two standard deviation, models for which is a one standard deviation of a world yet to happen. And if you do proper statistical averaging of that, you can put the strong feature being able to forecast a rare event in such a small weight that doesn't distort all the multitude of other representation of the world and it's going to be diluted enough that you're not going to have the problem that I was alluding to. So the key is really multi-model, averaging of all of them, having the ensemble so that you are not distorted by rare events like that. Like how it actually happens is very technical, but if you have a lot of models, you understand that the, the idea that you can forecast something completely out of the blue is going to be put in a small probability bucket, so it's not going to distort anything. I see. Uh, let's talk about main field games uh, and its theory. Yep. So um, this actually, this topic came up uh, in a previous Quantcast uh, when we were interviewing Rene Camona, which I believe you yeah, know quite well. Um, I know you're interested in the subject. Could you tell us intuitively what it is and uh, how that is useful for investment decisions? I mean, Rene is a close friend. Uh, you know, he gave us actually a lecture about Minfield Games theory. We have this duality lecture here at the fund. And uh, he was my statistics professor at Princeton. At the time, he was the chairman of the Operational Research Financial Engineering Department. This is 20 years ago. And we've been friends since. It just tries to describe, you know, the the interaction like instead of having of different agents in a market venue you can have a big seller you have a bunch of smaller players like it could be HFT and then you have the noisy traders that you can think of of traders that are not really optimized to anything and they're less price sensitive and so on and so forth. And then you describe the dynamics as this agent interacting and you can show that you know the the agent are gonna reach some form of Nash equilibrium and can give you very deep insight on how to execute large trades, how to model market impact and there is a whole area of describing, there is also beautiful work done in Brandeis of agent-based modeling, where you really describe markets or execution dynamics and market impact as the result of this um, agent interacting with each other with different you know, utility functions and reaching some Nash equilibrium and all of that. So it's very useful to have like this kind of representation I and mean, this kind of insight. And the reality is, like, we have the ambition of becoming very big and, you know, being super successful. I would guess, like, everybody has that ambition. But ultimately, the door to that kind of a path, once you become bigger, is really to have a deep understanding and really get much better at execution. Because when you are a smaller agent, the impact it's much less punitive for your fund, but then you really need to think in terms of you as an agent interacting with other agents, it could be HFT or other noisy traders, and really how you find your place and which kind of equilibrium you can reach and how to go about it. So it's very insightful and there is beautiful work that has been done.
Excellent. What other fields of maths or physics are uh, relevant to what you do and uh, attract your uh, your interest? Well, you know, it's very hard. Like, you know, math is all beautiful and physics. I was a physicist in my past life. Definitely, we deal with a lot of very large matrices, given we trade a lot of assets. So generally, having an understanding of random matrix theory, it's very important. You know, advances in optimization, filtering, it's very important to track things through time, very much like a GPS system. Optimization, every aspect of optimization is very important to us. Geometry is also important. When you explore it, try to find minima or maxima in, in a very complex space, the geometry of the space is very important. Like, you know, how do you go about visiting valleys and peaks and the topology of the space is very important. And, uh, you know, these are all hard problems. And it's very important to have a deep understanding of them because brute force just doesn't cut it. You can't really make progress just using, like, computational power. The understanding of the specificity of the problem is really key. So the filtering, signal theory, information theory in many ways, random matrix theory that is very dear to me as an anecdote because the first person who did it, did a seminar paper, was Freeman Dyson. And a few years ago, I was at the Institute for Advanced Studies, and my son at the time was the youngest in the room, was just a few months, and Freeman Dyson, I think, was 90, was the oldest person in the room. And we had a beautiful picture of Freeman Dyson holding my son. And he's the guy who really started this whole random matrix theory business. Interesting. Let's leave maths and physics out for a, for a second and ask you about uh, operations. Um, are the main operational to managing uh, the growth of duality? You started with just four partners and now you've got a large headcount. Actually, I don't know how many people and you've got multiple offices. In just a couple of years, what are the difficulties in uh, in doing quick, large growth? Well, we have a few dozen people. We have offices in Kiev and Warsaw and New York City. Uh, there are a lot of challenges. First, the type of people that you need at the beginning evolves. But in reality, you know, the thing you really need to be very careful with, it, you know, it's, I really think about this a lot, is that when you are at the very beginning, all the startups are obsessed with, the, they think it's all about the idea, whatever idea they have. Instead, it's about execution. Like, you really need to be very brutally uh, tough in being focused on executing. And a lot of startups don't succeed because they are so enamored with the idea, they make operational mistake. On the other hand, mature firm, as they mature and they come up with a process, they become very process-driven. They start believing it's all about the process. They forget it's actually it's all about the idea because once you have a process, you actually can welcome ideas and so on, but things become ossified. It becomes, that's the way we do the covariance matrix. That's the way we do. I've heard people saying, oh, we do the exponential moving average, and we do two years, or a year and a half, and having like Byzantine discussion about this. So we were brutally focused on the on execution, and that's maybe one of the reasons we succeeded. But the problem is, as you grow and you become more process-driven, how do you strike the balance between preserving the process but also being open to disrupt constantly, innovating? And uh, that's a challenge. And the other challenge is a lot of times, you know, you want to – how do you strike the balance also between answering – like – you have your own R&D, like you're constantly tackling 
small problems, but how do you nurture and help people like working on new ideas that are fundamental about, you know, how do you optimize, how do you do regularization? And there is always there are always shortcuts and sometimes answering the question in a very fundamental way it's very hard. But once you do, it opens a lot of possibilities. So I just like the balance of the tackling smaller problems instead of investing in bigger problems and questions that sometimes seem so hard to answer. And then people have ambition. You want to make sure people grow. You want to sure people feel part of the firm. And um, we try to, to address that too. It's, it's, it's not easy. <laughs> and, you know, like I always tell, I used to tell machine learning, owning equity for me, machine learning is a convex way of being short humans because equity is convex. And, and you know, as much as I wish that we could devise a neural net that can solve all our problems, you know, you have to deal with personalities and, you know, it's, it's a real challenge. And you have to deal in a way that that pioneer spirit is preserved. The one that you can't mute it at the beginning because you wanted to focus on execution, you need to resuscitate it and give it a voice. And that's a hard thing to do once you get stuck in your own processes. And I guess uh, personalities is one aspect of it, but talent is the other for running a firm like yours, you need a lot of that. So um, do you think experience in finance is a, is a requirement or uh, would you hire, let's say, a beautiful mind that has excelled in another field and doesn't have any formal training in finance? I mean, if I look at this, apart from, you know, we engaged Alessio Figali that is an expert in optimal transport theory. So he's not a finance person and with his Fields medal, and it's just a beautiful mind. Um, most of the people we have here, like, it was very idiosyncratic. One was a faculty in uh, general theory of relativity. Another person was a mathematician. Uh, but you need to have, I don't particularly care about finance exposure, but you need to have curiosity about finance and financial data and passion for tinkering and uh, playing with it. And uh, not everybody has it. You know, there are a lot of instances where, like, the best, you know, biologists of the new generation were former physicists. But you can be a great molecular biologist just being a physicist only because you know PDE better than what a biologist is trained to do. You really need to become a biologist. You need to love biology. You need to learn it. And sometimes, you know, people might be attracted just to the field by, for the money or for whatever other reason. They think it's sexy in New York to be in a hedge fund. But at the end of the day, you People need to be passionate about the problems of finance. But, and it's not easy to recruit great people. If you want to do a machine learning fund, you need people that are both exquisite mathematicians in terms of understanding probability theory and statistics, but also great coders. And the combination of the two, it's, it's a very hard thing to achieve. I see. And, and talking about research, actually, um, what do you focus it on, on? You talked earlier about striking a balance uh, on research and, uh, and development. So is yours um, focusing more on forecasting or do you dedicate a lot to optimization, execution, risk management or other uh, parts of uh, um, the function of the firm? Well, forecasting and optimization, you know, are very much connected. Like, um, you know, we are very focused on forecasting, of adding new ways of creating forecasts, because we really believe in this ensemble approach, where every model is misspecified. 
we gave up completely on the idea that you can bootstrap yourself from a simple model to a more complex model up until you get to this incredible model that has incredible odds of success. They're all mediocre. They're all misspecified. But there is something special of robustness and regularization that comes from mixing them like a polling mechanism. So the more way of producing forecasts, the better off we are. Optimization is it's a huge area also for technical problems. Like if you want to do multi-period optimization on thousands of assets, it's not an easy problem. A lot of the commercial solution will bomb unless you use very simple you know, market impact functional forms. And the feature engineering has been, as of recent, the most focus we have had in terms of creating new features, accounting. Like now that we have understood in a deep way how like the whole system works and how it interacts with the optimizer, we have made a tremendous progress. Now we want to enrich a lot the features with a bunch of other signal, like accounting measure and so on. And you know, to do it too early is dangerous because up up until it's a crisp understanding of everything, it's really dangerous to just throw data at the problem. But now we are, I think, in a great position, both from the optimizer point of view and the forecast point of view, to be able to add as many features as we want. And we think that's going to give us the next leg up. As far as execution, that's a side research that needs to be constantly improved. And because at every level of execution, a new world opens up. If you cut in half your execution, you get to see new alpha. It's like you get a new pair of glasses every time you reduce transaction cost. I see. Um, I know you uh, You know James Simons, and uh, James Simons has been deeply inspiring for you. Is there one lesson you learned from him that has proven to be valuable in your, in your own career in money management? I mean, there are two. I've been lucky enough to have met him multiple times. Uh, he has been inspiring, I would say, not just to me, to everybody. He's the guy in this space, and he was in mathematics. There are two things. One that goes back to Dirac. Dirac said, if you have great sense of beauty and knows aesthetics of equation, if you follow the beauty of equation, and you have very good intuition, you are on the right path. Like there is some beauty and symmetry and when you write stuff down that, is, that tells you are on the right path. And, I, and Jim always says that he's a, he has a sense of beauty for talent, the beauty of a company working on all cylinders and so on. So the, you need to have a nose for talent and beauty, and that could be a driving force. And the other thing is resilience. Like just a lot of people, and this is not me saying, it's a famous quote, you know, fail because they didn't realize how close they were to succeed when they gave up on it. There is no magic. Like you need to just keep at it, keep at it up until like you, there is no stopping ever especially for markets, because the edge goes away, alpha decays, the market itself is this living organism that seems to love confounding everybody and inflicting the most pain to everybody. So it's a very hard thing to do. And he had extreme resilience, extreme. Like he had rough times, there was on a personal level, also, he was extremely resilient, and he never gave up on it. And beauty was his guiding principle, among others. So I would say these two things. Okay. Um, um, I want to ask you uh, sort of a personal question, really. So you are a physicist, as you said. Uh, we know physics is based on experiments, but in asset management, you, you can't really run any experiment. You can only observe the markets. Uh, still, in the past few decades, physics has contributed uh, a lot to finance, in particular in uh, derivatives pricing. Um, 
So today, how does a background in physics help in investing? It's really, you know, like physics to me, it's very much a way to look at the world. Um, and uh, it's, apart from the skill set, you tend to be strong at making sense of very complex phenomenon uh, with just a very parsimonious representation of them. And think about it, imagining the Higgs boson, or like you look at any galaxy, making sense of those things, it's extremely hard. And there is these entities that you need to tackle and do it in a way that is sensible. So very much physicists, I think, have an edge in, in that sense. Similarly, it could be applied mathematicians, but definitely physicists are used to tackling problems that, or realities that they can control. Actually, going back to Jim Simons, once I interviewed him, and I said, who did best at medallion, at your firm? And he was very funny. He said, a bunch of people who did very well were astronomers. And the reason is, an astronomer is never tempted to say, well, if I move the Milky Way a little bit to the left and I squeeze a bit the sun and the moon goes a little bit further away, then my model will fit okay. They would, they would never be tempted to think in those terms. The world is the world and they need to come to terms with it. A lot of other sciences, they tend to simplify too much. They say if the, you know, if the system was linear and if this was stationary and this like, well, they're describing a world that doesn't exist. So also because the, especially mathematicians are attracted by closed form solutions. So they like affine processes where there is semi-analytical solution and so on. Physicists tend to tackle problem yet being trying to be as simple as possible, but also without losing track that there is complexity to deal with. And um, so I think it gives a gigantic edge. But, you know, I'm talking my book. <laughs> I'm a physicist. Well, indeed, I feel astronomy, it is a good, uh, a good parallel to finance. Um, last question, Dario. Do you do still research yeah. yourself? And if so, uh, what did you research on? And uh, are you in planning to publish any? Uh, you know, I was not one of the authors of the paper with Figali. You know, Karen was. You know, Karen is the other managing member. He's absolutely brilliant. And he really takes care of research. We discuss research a lot. I haven't done research recently. Um, every now and then, I think we're going to come up with some paper because we want to be part of the, you know, the discourse and the dialogue, uh, contributing somehow. Because it's, you know, I was saying before, in machine learning, it's five, ten people that actually do it. So it's upon us also. It's not just about being able to find investors, but also helping people understand issues about overfitting and dimensionality. That's why we published the paper with Alessio, because I thought it was very important to be able to address those issues. As a reason, not as much. I'm very involved and I'm aware of all the amazing research Karen does, but I can see within a year to go out with some paper that can be interesting and shed some light and help the dialogue to be on the right track about dimensionality, overfitting, filtering, and why this is the future of finance and, you know, can only go up. And machine learning is really, after having changed the world of medicine and diagnostic and image recognition, it's definitely going to change the world of finance too. Excellent. Well, I remember, at least as far as I know, uh, the latest paper you published was with Risk, actually, uh, three or four years ago. Uh, that uh, got you jointly with your co-authors the first inaugural um, buy-side quant of the year. Uh, I look forward to, to seeing the next one. Dario, this, yes. this was it. Uh, that was all my questions, which were many. Thank you very much for taking the time and joining us today. Of course. 
Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Wish you well. A great summer. And Thank you. Uh, always great to machine to you. learning and to great things ahead. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thank you. And thanks, everybody, for joining in and listening. 